It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. About a week before declaring himself a presidential candidate, Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire former mayor of New York City, showed up for Sunday services at the Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn. Thank you, everyone, and good morning. This is a 96,000-square-foot megachurch. The audience is mostly black. Bloomberg came here offering an apology. We did make mistakes. I made mistakes. I've never met anybody who hasn't made a mistake. The critical issue is whether you can admit it. This mistake happened when Bloomberg was mayor. That's when he supported a policy that allowed police to question and search New Yorkers, even when they were doing nothing wrong. The policy was called stop and frisk. Our focus was on saving lives. The fact is, far too many innocent people were being stopped while we tried to do that. And the overwhelming majority of them were black and Latino. That may have included, I'm sorry to say, some of you here today. Well, I mean, it was interesting to watch (laughs) because it was this kind of like, sorry, not sorry. Yes. Apology. Yes. Yes. Darius Charney was part of a team of lawyers that spent five years suing the city of New York over stop and frisk. He saw this speech and he thought, really? I mean, it surprised me because everything I'd heard him say about stop and frisk both when he was mayor and even in the first few years afterwards, were the opposite of an apology. If you listen closely to Bloomberg as he talks about this policing policy, you can hear him skating around what he's trying to say, offering excuses about trying to keep New Yorkers safe, and then admitting he came up short as mayor. Like here he is giving that same speech, the apology. In fact, no other city in America did what we did. We reduced murders by 50%, reduced police shootings to historic lows, reduced the number of people incarcerated by nearly 40%. There's this one detail Darius can't stop thinking about, a claim that Bloomberg has started making in the last couple of months, that under his administration, stop and frisks actually plummeted, 95%. Darius says in reality, The year Bloomberg stepped down, the city was conducting twice as many stop and frisks as when the mayor took office. And City Hall was continuing to fight for this policy in court. So then to hear him say, I I realized we were doing the wrong thing and I started to roll it back. Those two things just don't. (laughs) I can't reconcile those things, I guess. I thought we were done arguing over whether or not the city had violated the law and Michael Bloomberg was responsible for their violations and played a role in it. And I thought we were just now supposed to talk about how we could fix it. But I guess we're now sort of relitigating, no pun intended, what happened 10 years ago or and more and what his role in it was. You look like slightly traumatized as you say that. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we live in, I think, sort of traumatizing times. Today on the show, Darius is going to tell the stop and frisk story from his perspective. He took the city to court, arguing stop and frisk was racist, and he won. But seven years later, he's still defending that win as Bloomberg's campaign tries to defend the mayor's record. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Darius says one of the things you have to understand about stop and frisk is that it's a policing tactic that's been around a long time. A Supreme Court ruling actually allows it under certain circumstances. But data from the NYPD shows the practice skyrocketed when Mayor Bloomberg came into office. It's something that has been around for a long time. But I think what Michael Bloomberg and Ray Kelly did is they turned it into really a, a one of their primary crime-fighting strategies. Ray Kelly, the police chief. Yes. So 2002, Michael Bloomberg takes office. Mm -hmm. How did he work with Ray Kelly to change the way stop and frisk was being implemented? I mean, when he first came into office in 2002, his first year in office, the NYPD recorded about 92,000 stop, question, and frisk encounters for that year. By 2011, which is his 10th year in office, that number had ballooned to almost 700,000. So that's like a 600% or more increase. Meanwhile, crime in the city continues to go down. So why do we see this huge increase? Was there a need to it? Was there a, for it? Was there a crime spike? Absolutely not. Along with that, what you see Ray Kelly and his you know, senior leadership of the department doing is they are really putting out a message from the top Stop, question, and frisk needs to be a primary crime-fighting strategy that our officers need to use. They, they said that in writing. They told their supervisors, when you are evaluating your officer's performance to decide on things like promotion and better assignments, one of the criteria you need to use to assess them is how many stops are they doing? How many tickets are they writing? 
So the more stop and frisk you're doing as a cop, yes. the more gold stars you get. Exactly. And the better the better evaluations you get. And conversely, if you're not doing them, you know, we talked to many police officers who came forward at, at great risk to their own careers and, and testified in court about this. They were they were told if you don't make the stops, you know, your life is not gonna be good in this department and you're not gonna you're not gonna get ahead. And and sure enough, if you look at those officers' performance evaluations for some years, their supervisors are saying he's not doing enough stops. Hmm. What was stop and frisk meant to stop? I hear people talk about guns. Yeah. I hear people talk about drugs. And I hear a kind of conflation of the two. Yes. So what was stop and frisk meant to actually prevent? Well, I mean, what the NYPD said all along and Bloomberg and Kelly said is that we're going to use it to get guns off the street. And I think as we know, looking at the data for now, we have almost 20 years of data they find a gun almost never when they stop people. Um, you know, at the time of the trial, the data we had looked at over the preceding 10 years, they had recovered a gun in about 0.15% of the stops that they conducted, which is... Doesn't sound very yeah, effective. No. Um, so, you know, it clearly as a strategy for recovering illegal weapons, it was a miserable failure. As Darius talks about this tactic, I could hear this disbelief in his voice. That might be because he's been saying the same thing for so long. He and his colleagues at the Center for Constitutional Rights filed their first lawsuit against Stop and Frisk back in 2008. They weren't arguing against the practice at large. They were arguing against how it was being implemented aggressively by targeting people of color. So... Our plaintiffs, uh, original four plaintiffs, were uh, four black men of varying ages from different parts of New York City. We had uh, our lead lead plaintiff, David Floyd, was at that time a 20-something-year-old black man who was a student at City College um, in Harlem. He lived in the Bronx. He had been himself stopped and frisked by officers in the Bronx on two occasions, both times he was near his home in Parkchester. Then the second time, he was literally stopped putting keys into the door of his neighbor's apartment. He lived in a you know a two-family, the basement floor. His neighbor had gotten locked out of, of the house. It's, again, middle of the day, putting the keys into the door, you know, trying the different keys to try to get the right one. His neighbor was standing next to him, and the police came up on him. They, they patted them down. They went through their pockets. Why yeah. did these men want to get involved in this lawsuit? Why so, was it? Yes, they they wanted to get involved, and they all told us similar stories. They said we want to we want this to stop happening to us and to our friends and loved ones because all of them, you know, not only were they black men, they lived in the neighborhoods where this was happening all the time, South Bronx, Harlem, um, and I, I I will never forget David Floyd testified the first day of the trial, you know, when he was asked how does it make you feel to get stopped like this, and he said. It really makes me feel like I am not free to move around this city. An audio recording that surfaced recently shows how Bloomberg thought about stop and frisk back when he was still defending it in 2015. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that are getting killed, Bloomberg said. The idea was send cops to minority neighborhoods and search people. Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. Why do we do it? Bloomberg asked. Because that's where all the crime is. 
And that was actually his explanation in 2013. That was Ray Kelly's explanation um, back then. And, you know, we had her testimony in, during the trial in our case from uh, Eric Adams, who's now the borough president of Brooklyn, but he's a former NYPD captain. He was a state senator at the time. And he testified that Ray Kelly told him to his face this exact same argument that Michael Bloomberg says in 2015, that, look, we go to the high crime areas if we, you know, yes, we do target black and Latino young men. And, you know, obviously there are many problems with those statements and kind of constitutional alarm bells go off for me. But the other thing to to note here is that if you look at the data and we had a uh, social scientist at Columbia look at this and he testified in, in court in our case, he, he kind of took the NYPD their word and said, OK, so you're saying you go to high crime areas. That's where your cops go. And so since that's where they are because that's where the crime is, then naturally they're going to stop people in those neighborhoods the most. And who lives in those neighborhoods? Black and Latino kids. He looked at that and he controlled for two things. He controlled for crime and he controlled for officer deployment, which is what Bloomberg was talking about, right? We send our cops to the high crime areas. And what he found is even after you control for those two things, what is the single strongest predictor of who gets stopped and where stops happen? Race. Hmm. Well, I guess there's this other there's this other thing, which is what is a high crime area? Exactly. Because once you have more <laughs> cops in an area, they're arresting more people. Exactly. You're arresting more people. It becomes a high crime yes, area. And then it becomes exactly. this kind of circle. Self-fulfilling where... prophecy, as the judge called it. But yes, absolutely. So, yeah, that's the question. So then what is a high crime area? So one example from our case is we had a, a man, one of our plaintiffs who lived in... Um, I guess Southeast Queens, and he was stopped and frisked on a winter evening, I think in like 2009. And the officer who stopped him, one of the reasons the officer gave was, well, the, I, I observed him in a high crime area. And he said- That's it? Know, well, I he just said, observed well, he said, him? I observed him in a high crime area and I noticed a bulge in his jacket, which of course was a cell phone. And keep in mind, this is in the middle of the night, like December night in 2009. So I'm like, I don't know how you saw a bulge in his- pocket, but whatever, it was a cell phone. So those were the two reasons he gave. He had a uh, bulge in his pocket and he was in a high crime area. So he's, you know, cross-examined in court. Well, what did you, how was this a high crime area? And his answer was, well, there was a robbery pattern in in Queens, a robbery pattern in Queens. Now, Queens is, I believe, the is it the largest borough by landmass in, in New York City? It's so massive. T- to say that there was a robbery pattern in all of Queens and that robbery pattern, I guess, was three or four robberies over the course of the prior month, and they were committed by black males. And so that was that was what made this neighborhood, in his view, a high crime area. So <laughs> your trial played out all during Michael Bloomberg's yes. administration. And I'm wondering how you saw that as part of the trial. Like, we have done other reporting mm-hmm. that talked a little bit about his money and how... Mm-hmm he was able to use his financial, his wealth Mm -hmm. to push the agenda he wanted to push. In the courtroom, day in, day out, did you see that? Did you get a sense of that? I mean, I think what was clear to us is that the the NYPD's media machine was very, very powerful because, you know, the press was obviously covering this trial very closely, which, you know, we expected them to. But, you know, what became clear to us every day, because we would go outside and we would meet with reporters during the recesses and answer questions, is so many of the reporters' questions, the way they frame them, I'm like, did the NYPD feed those to you? Like what? So I remember one of the, fir- 
I don't remember if it was the first day of the trial, but one of the first few days of the trial during one of the breaks, a reporter asked, you know, said, we just received these this data from the NYPD. So that, of course, proves it was fed. That says that, you know, young black men, black teenagers are twice as likely to possess weapons in New York City as white teenagers. And so then I said, oh, really? So, what, you know, what are those numbers? Can you tell them? And, and, the, and the reporter said, well, you know, the NYPD has found that one out of every thousand white boys possess a weapon, two out of every thousand black. And I'm like, oh, two out of every thousand. That really, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the judge wasn't buying this spin either. When she eventually ruled, Judge Shira Shinlin didn't overturn stop and frisk, but she said it was being applied overwhelmingly against black and brown New Yorkers and that that was unconstitutional. So she appointed a monitor to oversee the use of stop and frisk by the NYPD. She recommended police wear body cameras. And she said the community and the police should go through a joint remedial process to reestablish trust. How did Bloomberg respond to this decision? Well, he literally called her biased. I believe the press conference the same day as the decision came out, he and Kelly were there. He, he accused the, the Judge Shinlin of bias. He said that she did not know anything about how policing works in New York City. Throughout the case, we didn't believe that we were getting a fair trial. And this decision confirms that suspicion. And we will be presenting evidence of that unfairness to the appeals court. We'll also be pointing out to the appeals court that Supreme Court precedents were largely ignored in this decision. And the part I found most hilarious, he suggested, you know, with his legal expertise, I didn't realize he had, that she had misinterpreted the Constitution, which, you know, that, that's pretty ballsy for a, a non-lawyer to tell a federal judge and, and former law professor that she misinterpreted the Constitution. But hey. As this ruling came down, Bloomberg's term as mayor was coming to an end. But that didn't stop him from continuing to fight against Judge Shinlin's decision. By November of 2013, he knew two things. He knew, one, de Blasio was going to be the next mayor, for sure. He had won the election. And he knew that the appeals court had already set a schedule where the appeal would not be argued and heard until February 2014 at the earliest, which at that point, de Blasio was already in office. So Bloomberg literally had his lawyers file a motion to try to take that ability to drop the appeal away from de Blasio and have a rushed decision by the appeals court, not even based on a full record, which is, you know, the only time a court will ever do that if there's like literally like a physical emergency where if you don't rule now, you know, something terrible is going to happen and we won't be able to fix it later. And that's the argument that he, his lawyers tried to make. The appeals court said, we're not going to rush this through. This is a very important case. It's got an 8,000-page record. You can't tell us to decide this on, like, you know, a brief from each side without any argument or any documents. Like, we, we're not going to do that. And so once that happened, that was kind of his moonshot. He couldn't do anything else. De Blasio came in, and in, you know, the end of, Jan- the end of his first month in office, he, he uh, dropped the appeal. What did we learn... Once stop and frisk had had sort of plummeted to the extent it has now. Well, I think what we learned is that contrary to what uh, Michael Bloomberg and Ray Kelly said, crime did not go up. Um, chaos did not ensue. I mean, you know, they were they were saying back in late 2013 after this ruling that like the way I interpreted it was, you know, Judge Shinlin, you police 
accountability people, you're going to have blood on your hands for this. I mean, that's how that's how I heard their rhetoric, um, because they believed that if officers had to cut back on their stops, crime was going to go up, and that definitely did not happen. Crime continued to go down, and meanwhile, stops plummeted. I mean, you know, de Blasio, unlike Bloomberg, I think, can... <laughs> can uh, truthfully say that stops have gone down, you know, 95, 97% during his his uh, time in office. And yet crime did not, you know, spike because of that, which I think shows us again that stop, question, and frisk was not really having much of an impact on crime in New York City, but it was having, I think, a very damaging effect on the relationships between the police department and communities of color in New York. I know that there's, as part of the ruling, there's someone overseeing mm-hmm. stop and frisk now. Yes. Does that mean the accountability is there now? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think it's there in that the NYPD has to, on a regular basis, report to this federal monitor about how things are going. His The monitor's team will go to, you know, observe the NYPD trainings and review their policies and their data. And, and, and the racial disparities actually have not improved at all. Hmm. even since the time of trial, which is, I think, for us, the biggest concern. That seems alarming. That was the whole reason for the decision. Yes. And, you know, I I think one of our biggest, meaning our our team and our clients' biggest disappointments with the monitorship thus far, and I'm not blaming any particular person or, or group of people, but we don't feel like the the racial profiling aspect of Judge Shinlin's decision has been meaningfully dealt with yet. And I think we still have a lot of work to do on that. And I, I put myself in that we, I think the plaintiffs have a lot of work to do, the NYPD, the monitor team, in really addressing the racial profiling part of what Judge Shinlin decided and what she ordered. Does the mayor's apology for you as the person who is butting heads for so long, does it does it make any difference given the racism of the policy as it was implemented? Does it make any difference that he that he's apo- apologized. apologized for it? I mean, it doesn't take away the harm that was caused for sure. And, you know, the generation of young men, I mean, I've spoken to so many, you know, kids who are now high school age or early college who they've just grown up in New York City and that's all they've known because, you know, they were born and and came of age during the Bloomberg era, which lasted 12 years. And so then when you talk about, well, you know, I think since de Blasio has come in, the NYPD has tried to prioritize, at least publicly, we're trying to rebuild these relationships with the communities that we've, you know, alienated and, and treated unfairly, that's very hard for them to do because you have, I think, people who are like, for for a decade or more, that's how I've experienced policing. It's very hard for them to trust when the police are now saying, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. You know, you're wearing the same uniform. It still says NYPD. You're driving the same cars. I, it's really hard for them to, I think, believe that, that that's not going to be how they're treated anymore. Darius Charney, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. 
Darius Charney is a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Full disclosure, our kids are also in kindergarten together. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. I'm Mary Harris. If you were off for the long weekend, welcome back. We'll be back in your feed tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.